So it's good to uh, good to see here. Scott is going to come up. I'll, let me open in prayer, and then Scott will lead us in hymn number one ninety nine. Arise, my soul, arise. Our Father, again, we're just so thankful to be so blessed, so enriched, so edified by all that we're hearing from Dr. Annual and Dr. Ross. It is so good to be in your word, to be refreshed and strengthened by your word. And we are so thankful that we have your word. Now, Father, as we worship you in song and then in teaching of your word, Challenge us, encourage us, may we be strengthened and edified, and may you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand again.
All right, good to be with you again this afternoon. Wanted to uh, let you know about a couple uh, other resources that are on the table uh, in the uh, Sunday School room over here. Uh, I mentioned that um, I had a book just come out Friday, and I don't have a copy of that because it's it's brand new, uh, drawn near the heart of communion with God. But just the week prior, I had another another book come out. I had a I had a sabbatical last spring, and I got a lot of writing projects done, and they're finally sort of coming out and uh, seeing some of the fruit of that. Uh, but this one I'm, I'm particularly uh, excited about. It's, uh, it's a book called Tune My Heart, Bible Narrative's Devotional Guide for Individuals and Families. I originally, uh, a number of years ago, began to put this together just for my own children. I wanted them to read through the Bible, and I think at that time they were like eight and six or nine and seven, and we, we worked through a, a read-through-the-Bible plan like many of us use, and uh, we, they, they made it through, but it was tough at that age to get through all of Scripture. So I thought, well, well, the next year I would put together a Bible reading plan that just goes through the narratives of Scripture to, to kind of get, get them familiar with all of the, the narrative content as well as the Psalms and Proverbs. And then uh, that, that worked really, really well, and then I began to put, put uh, together some study notes that corresponds with the daily reading, as well as weekly memory verses and hymns, all sort of in a package, and I began to sort of share that online, and, and families were saying, hey, we're using this, and we're finding this to be really, really helpful. And so I, I, I just uh, finished putting it in print form, and so this includes the entire uh, Bible reading plan, as well as study notes, discussion questions, uh, for each of the day's readings, then a, a weekly hymn that corresponds to the reading, a memory passage, and then as well a, 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 a theological catechism as well to help to teach uh, biblical truths. So I originally designed it for children and families to use, but really even anyone who just sort of wants to slow down their Bible reading for a year and just focus on the narratives and the poetry, the Psalms and the Proverbs, uh, this this would be a helpful thing uh, to use. And then I, I put it uh, I, a second little volume that has everything that's in here except for the study notes. And so uh, a family, how I conceived of this, is a a family could get these copies for each of the children. The parent has this for the study notes. And then in times of family worship, that way everyone can see the hymn and be able to sing, you know, during the the family time of worship and see the memory verse for the week and that sort of thing. So I'm I'm really uh, praying that this will be a helpful devotional resource for families. Uh, It's important that we rear up our children in the way that they should go. And uh, um, I'm hoping that this will be a, a resource along those lines. And then uh, along similar lines in terms of a teaching resource, I had these resources last time I was here, so some of you may have them already. Uh, but for those of you who don't, my first two books, Worship and Song and then Sound Worship, uh, kind of work together. Worship and Song is far more in-depth, obviously. This this I wrote specifically to be an introduction and for, for average lay people. And then I developed a teacher's edition that works with both of these so that you could use this in a Sunday school class or a, a Bible study uh, kind of thing where where the your students whether they be they could be young people teenagers or even adults in your church can read sound worship you've got worship and song and the teacher's edition kind of brings in some of those notes
notes, discussion questions, and gives helps to the teachers uh, to help you teach uh, the, uh, biblical theology of worship, biblical theology of music, and these sorts of things. So I'm trying to constantly come up with new resources to try to help pastors and parents to be able to instruct others in uh, in biblical teaching regarding worship and, and music because, uh, as we've been talking about this week, uh, there's, there's a lot of confusion today. There's a lot of... Um, uh, uh, misunderstanding as to the the purpose and function of of music within worship and even what we're doing when we gather for worship and uh, and so I'm I'm trying to just provide resources through uh, my ministry religious affections ministries uh, to try to help pastors and parents be able to instruct others in these ways. Um, so what I would like to do during this time, I, a number of years ago, I, I gave a series of lectures at a seminary in South Carolina, and I just called the series Correcting Categories. There are so, and we've talked about this a little bit already this week. In, in our post-enlightenment world, there are certain categories that have been so strongly influenced by sort of a secularist, humanist philosophy that just have pervaded Western culture, including we as Christians, to the point that when we go back and we look at Scripture or when we go back and look at what Christians wrote about Scripture, about worship, about music, and about many other things, prior to the Enlightenment, we can't help but read what they're saying through our post-Enlightenment lenses. Does that make sense? In other words, we have different categories than they did. We have different categories now on this side of the Enlightenment that the biblical authors did when they were writing the text of Scripture. We have different categories than some of the church fathers or other theologians writing even during the Reformation just prior to the Enlightenment. And so I think a lot of what we need to do if we're going to recover uh, some of the, the, this teaching regarding what we are doing when we worship, uh, what, what God intends for worship to be for us as his people, and particularly what, uh, what the purpose of music and, and, and other cultural expressions should be in, in, in worship, a lot of what we have to do first is correct some categories. A lot of the confusion that exists, I think, among believers today and in churches today regarding worship, music, and culture exists because of categories that have been so changed that, that we just we're not we're not even reading these things as they were originally written. And so I want to I want to attempt to correct a couple of those categories in, in this session today. And the first is the idea of emotion. There's, you know, when we talk about worship, we talk about music, everybody wants to talk about, okay, what about emotion? Is emotion good? Is emotion bad? Are we supposed to express emotion in music? Are we supposed to not exp- express emotion in music? What's the role of emotion in the Christian life, right? These are, these are natural questions that we have. But, but this idea of emotion is one of those categories that I would suggest has been altered today in, in, because of the Enlightenment, different from how biblical authors would have understood things and even Christians between the close of the New Testament and the, the 17th and 18th centuries. Any, any thinker on this side of the Enlightenment, that's us, 
needs to account for the influences of modernism and postmodernism upon our thinking about even this category of emotion if we are going to understand what the Bible teaches under this broad umbrella. I mean, even even the category of emotion, that term itself is a relatively new concept. It's not a biblical category. It's not a pre-modern category. It was a category that was created near, near the beginning of the age of reason, near the beginning of the Enlightenment, as a way to describe the experience of human beings as mere animals. We are mere physical beings who have chemical uh, things that happen inside our bodies, and, and, and what we feel when that happens is emotion. This is, this is an enlightenment category. It's not, it, 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 it was created during, during the age of reason. Pre-modern thought, so everything prior to the enlightenment, prior to the age of reason, including the Reformation, the Middle Ages, and, and I'm going to look specifically at the New Testament here in a moment, pre-modern thought understood not just one sort of broad category called emotion, but rather, when thinking about human anthropology and how we as human beings respond in the world, pre-modern thought understood two categories, a distinction between two categories that today, post-enlightenment, we just kind of lump all together under this really sort of meaningless word, emotion. Pre-modern thought understood these two categories, and interestingly, uh, they, the, these categories go all the way back to Greek thought, which was the context of the New Testament authors. And the Greeks used anatomical terms as metaphors to signify these two categories. We do the same thing. Dr. Ross talked about this too. You know, the Hebrews used the spleen as a metaphor for the, 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 the seat of the affections. Well, Greeks used the chest or the splankna, the, the sort of upper cavity of the body, to describe the affections of the soul. So similar to how we use the word heart today, right? And they used the, uh, the word belly or koilea for the passions or appetites of the body. These were two distinct categories in, in uh, Greek discussion of, of human anthropology. And we're going to see in a moment, these are the categories that New Testament authors employ as well. The splankna, the chest, is the seat of the affections. Things like joy, love, courage, compassion. The koilea is the seat of the, the passions a lot of theologians later are going to call these. I'll give, I'll, I'll give some examples here in a moment of that. Uh, the appetites, I like, I, like just, I like the parallelism of affections and appetites, right? The affections of the soul, love, joy, peace, compassion, that's the chest. And the belly are the appetites. These are just you know, the physical impulses of the body, uh, uh, things like physical appetite, things like uh, uh, sexual uh, impulses that are, are, are God-given and part of our physical makeup, things like fear or anger. These are, these are chemical responses of the body. And in, in Greek thought, again, in the context of the New Testament authors, which I'll, I'll point to in just a moment, the affections 
are, are to be nurtured, they're to be cultivated. This is the core of what it means to be human. And for biblical authors, this is what drives us to, be, to, to act upon what we believe. Right? What, did, what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love, something that has to do with our affections. So what's important is not only what we believe, but also what we love. We've talked about that already this week. That, that was the affections. This is, this is part of, of, of our humanity that we should nurture and cultivate and develop. The passions, on the other hand, need to be kept under control, our appetites. They're not evil. Now, in, in Greek Platonic thought, they were evil, but Christians said, no, God created us with bodies. The body is good. You know, the, the, the Gnostic heresy adopted Platonic thought fully. The Gnostic heresy in the first couple centuries of the church said, the body is bad, therefore Jesus must not have really had a body. Maybe he was just, he just looked like he had a body, right? And, and Christians very quickly said, no, no, that's heretical. Jesus Christ took on human flesh. The flesh in and of itself is not bad. Human passions, human, human appetites are not bad. They're God-given, right? Uh, h- hunger is a good thing. Without it, we might forget to eat. Uh, and, and some of us are weird like that. The, the year after I graduated from college, I lived a year by myself before I got married. My wife had, my fiance at that point had one more year uh, uh, of college. And I literally would forget to eat. I, I would, I'm just weird. I would work all day in the church. You know, I was at a church position in Illinois and I would, I would work all day and I'd get to the end of the day and, I, and I'd say, you know, I don't think I ate today, you know. That's not normal, <laughs> and it's not healthy, right? Uh, God has given us the physical appetite of hunger in order to motivate us to eat. Or fear, right? The, the rush of adrenaline when we're scared, that is a God-given impulse that gives us the, 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 the ability to get out of the way of, of, of the, you know, the, the train that's coming down the tracks or whatever. Uh, sexuality is good and God-given. It serves a purpose, right? These are God-given impulses, but they have to be controlled. This is, this is what Christians taught. This is what the New Testament teaches. Because if you allow the appetites to get out of control, they always will bypass the mind. They'll bypass what we believe and lead us into sin. So physical hunger is a good thing, but if you don't control it, it leads to gluttony. Sexuality is a good thing. If you don't control it, it leads to, to lust and, and immorality. Fear is a good God-given impulse, the rush of adrenaline. But, but if you allow it to control you, then you're, you're, you're controlled by fear to the degree that you don't act in, in accordance to what you believe. You see, the problem is if we don't control our, our belly, our appetites, these God-given physical impulses of who we are, if we don't control them, they're, they're going to lead to sin. And ultimately, if there is a conflict between what we believe and our belly, the belly is going to win. Right? I mean, the, the perfect example of this, I, th- I think sadly probably all of us in this room can give at least one example of, of some pastor or church leader that we know who who committed adultery? Who committed a, 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 an immoral a sin of immorality? What was his problem that he didn't know it was wrong? Right? Was his problem lack of understanding? No, the problem wasn't with the mind. The problem was that he didn't control 
the God-given natural impulse of sexuality, but he didn't keep it under control in its proper place. And therefore, when, the, when it came to the temptation, he gave in to the temptation, the passions over, overcame the mind. And what the New Testament teaches and what Christian theologians uh, after the New Testament taught is that the way in which we make sure that our actions are being driven by our beliefs is that we keep the passions under control by cultivating and nurturing and, and growing our affections for Christ, our love for him, our satisfaction in him. Our, our chest. And you can see this in, in the New Testament. For example, Paul in Philippians 3, he's describing the enemies of Christ. And you know, the, you know this, this common phrase. He says, their God is their belly, their koilea, their appetites, their passions. Enemies of Christ in this passage, according to Paul, are people who just live according to their gut. They don't keep those passions in their proper place. Again, Christian theologians didn't say the passions are not bad. They are God-given. They are good. But they have to be kept under control. On the other hand, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells Christians to put on the splankna, the chest, the affections of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, and meekness. The old King, King James uh, uh, translated this very, very literally. If, you, if you're familiar with, it, with the King James, the, they translated it, bowels of mercy. Why did they translate it that way? Because they were literally translating splankna, the, 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 the cavity, the, the body cavity. Well, well, that's, that's being used as a metaphor to describe the affections of the soul. Things like Colossians 3, mercy, kindness, humbleness, meekness, and long-suffering. And so you can see that, that New Testament writers adopting these, you know, writing in Greek, writing in the Koine Greek of the day, adopted these categories as a way to describe these two elements, the splankna, the chest, the affections, and the koilia, the belly, the appetites, the passions. Now, this kind of distinction has largely been lost in our day. Again, because of the influence of the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, the, the, the development of this sort of nebulous category, emotion, was created to kind of encapsulate all of this, such that I, I tell my students, really, if they ask me, is emotion good or bad, I say that is a meaningless category. I don't know. It depends on what you mean. Is emotion good or is emotion bad? Should we have emotion in worship or should we not have, have, have emotion in worship? My answer is that's the wrong question. That, that's, that's an unhelpful word. It's just a nebulous category, this side of the Enlightenment. We could mean, when we say emotion, the affections of the soul. And if, if that's what we mean, absolutely I mean, the affections are the core of who we are as Christians. Without love for Christ, we are not Christians. But if we merely mean the, the physical impulses of the appetites, well, then that's another story. The question is, what do we mean? And you can see how this, this broader category of emotion is a, is a, is a category that needs some, some correction. One, one uh, theologian who, who really dealt with this issue was Jonathan Edwards during the First Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards, in, uh, he's living right, right during the, the early years of the Enlightenment when these distinctions are starting to fade away. 
And Edwards recognizes this, and he says, whoa, 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 we need to be careful. We need to maintain these, these, these categories. We need to maintain these distinctions. Edwards, in his book, The Religious Affections, he defined affection as the inclination of the will. In other words, like I said earlier, it's what moves us, it's what inclines us to do what we know is right. We might fill our heads with knowledge, but unless we have affections to support that knowledge, we're not going to live according to that knowledge. And so Edwards is emphasizing this is, this is critical, the affections are critical for Christians to cultivate. In fact, he says there is no true biblical religion without the religious affections. Just believing the right stuff is not enough. We have to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But on the other hand, the passions are just part of our physical being. Again, he's going to say they're good, they're, they're God-given, but they're, they, they, they're just they're, they're very similar to what animals experience. They're just chemical chemical responses, right? Animals get rush of adrenaline when they get scared. Humans get rush of adrenaline when, when we get scared. It, it's very similar. Here, here, here's what he said, because he's trying to, he's trying to deal with this problem of, of confusing these two categories that was beginning to appear during his day. He said, this is from the religious affections, the affections and passions are frequently spoken of as the same. So he's, he's witnessing in his day people that are just kind of using these terms interchangeably and very soon that word emotion is going to come and replace it. But yet in the more common use of speech, he means traditionally how, how, we've, how we've talked for centuries all the way back to the New Testament, there is in some respect a difference. Affection is a word that in the ordinary signification, again, in the traditional use, seems to be something more extensive than passion being used for all the vigorous, lively actings of the will or inclination. Again, it's what drives our will to do what we know is right in our minds. But the passions are more sudden, whose effects on the animal spirits, that was just a common way to talk about just the, 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 uh, the chemical responses of the body. The passions have a more sudden effect that produce what we might call feelings, feeling of exhilaration, goosebumps in the flesh, the hairs on the back of your neck stip, you know, sticking up, tears coming to your eyes, these sorts of things. These are physical feelings, right? He says, the passions are more sudden and whose effects on those feelings are more violent and the mind more overpowered and less in its own command. So you can see Edwards is, Edwards is trying to recover this distinction. He's trying to recover this distinction because the lack of distinction in his day was causing theological and practical problems. You know, Jonathan Edwards served during the time that we commonly call the Great Awakening when the Holy Spirit of God was doing a, a wonderful work in, in bringing people to faith. Uh, Edwards was simply preaching expositionally through Romans. He was preaching on justification by faith alone. By the accounts that we have, he, he had a manuscript and he read it in a monotone voice and people were coming under deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
And people were getting saved by the dozens and then hundreds and then many, many people were coming to faith in Christ. Well, along with those conversions, there were a lot of reports of extreme outward emotional outbursts. There's, there's the account of Edwards preaching his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And again, he's not, he's not preaching hellfire and brimstone. He's reading a manuscript. And people are literally clinging to the pillars, crying out in fear that they are about to be judged by God. Some people are fainting. Some people are just crying out in the middle of the service. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of physical stuff going on. And the problem is then that, that there, were, there were two responses to these, to these physical outbursts. On the one hand, some people looked at that and said, all of this physical stuff, this is evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is not at work because this is just extremism. That was one response. But on the other hand, there were others who looked at all of the, the, the screaming and the fainting and the calling out and all this kind of thing, and they said, ah, that is, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working. If the Holy Spirit's working, then that is what always necessarily will happen. And the problem, that those two responses, Edwards, Edwards is kind of coming in the middle, and he's looking at both of these, and he's saying, both of these are the wrong conclusion because of a lack of understanding this distinction, of a lack of understanding this traditional distinction, which has a long history through the, 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 the theologians of the church and goes all the way back to the Greek language of the New Testament. Now, I'm going to get back to that in just a moment, but I want to... I wanna, uh, expand a little bit the traditional Christian belief between these two categories that Edwards is trying to recover. As I mentioned earlier, the problem is that if we don't control the physical appetites, if we don't control the physical passions, they will always overcome the mind unless they are, unless the mind, what we believe is supported by our, our affections the, I think the, the, the most beautiful way this is described is actually in a more recent theologian who's also trying to uh, argue something very similarly, and that is C.S. Lewis in his book, The Abolition of Man. He has this memorable phrase, the head rules the belly through the chest. And he was, he was another writer who's trying to do the same thing as, as Edwards, he's, and, and he's obviously a lot later than Edwards. By the time C.S. Lewis is writing, he's like, nobody even knows what they're talking about anymore because we're so riddled through with, with rationalistic thinking about anthropology. We just talk about emotion and we, and we don't even know what we're talking about. And so he's, trying to re- he, he's another one trying to recover this idea, and he's saying we've got to believe the right stuff. We need to fill our head with biblical teaching and right theology, but also we need to nurture and support and cultivate our affections so that our head can rule our belly through the chest. Uh, This this is really the nature of saving faith, biblically speaking, if you think about it. Faith is not just believing the right stuff. Right? The demons believe. Satan knows all the right information. 
Satan knows God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He created all things. He knows Jesus Christ is his son. He knows Jesus died on the cross. He knows Jesus rose again. What, what is essential to faith is belief in facts combined with the affection of trust. Saving faith is mind plus chest. This is what Edwards was arguing. arguing. True biblical religion consists in the religious affections, Edwards, Edwards says. As Christians, we need to believe the right things. We need to support that belief with noble affections. And then, 1 Corinthians 9.27, we need to beat our bodies and make them our slaves. Not that the physical is bad, not that our bodies are bad, they are God-given, but we have to control them. That's exactly what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he said, I beat my body daily to make it my slave. We've got to keep it under control. And so, and so the point at this, at this stage is that when people talk about emotion today, they are speaking of a category that may include the affections, may include the passions, may just be talking about physical feelings, and we really don't know what we're talking about. We, when, we, when we talk about Christianity, when we go back to the New Testament and we read, for instance, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, tenderness, compassion, long-suffering, we need to recognize what the biblical authors are talking about. They're talking about there the chest, the affections. This is a, a New Testament, a pre-modern anthropology. Now, again, we, we make those distinctions, but we don't want to fall into a sort of Gnostic heresy that so divorces these and then renders the body bad and, and the, the, the desire, the goal is just the spirit. That's, that's Platonism. That's what Plato taught, that our goal in life is to free ourselves from the physical and just become one with the spiritual forms. New Testament authors didn't buy into that, and theologians uh, after the New Testament did not buy into that either. They adopted those categories, those are distinctions, but nevertheless, pre-modern Christian thought understood humans, people, to be a union of body and spirit. Our body affects our spirit, our spirit affects our body. They work together in a sort of holistic dualism. What we do with our bodies does affect our, our spirits and what we believe in our minds and the affections that we that we cultivate in our uh, in our chest does affect our physical bodies and this is exactly how god created and designed us to to live and and we'll I'm, i believe we'll always have a body right we're, we're going to be given a new body now it will be it will be a body without sin we do have that issue but we'll always have a body this is a good thing that god has given us but we have to remember that what happens in our bodies may or may not be a result of something that happens in our spirits. Sometimes something happens in our spirits and it produces a physical response. Right? This is what Edwards was trying to argue against those who were saying, ah, the physical stuff is proof, is proof this is not a work of the spirit. Edwards says, no, 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 no. Sometimes... When people come under deep conviction of the Holy Spirit, something happens in their spirit, it influences their bodies. And people might, 
I mean, he, he, Edwards said, sometimes people will, will faint because they are so overcome in their spirit by grief at the sin that they have committed against a holy God. Sometimes that happens. But other times we experience physical feelings and it's just because of some sort of artificial stimulant. Right, so the the example I like to use uh, to to illustrate the difference is like laughing because someone tells you a joke, or laughing because someone tickles you. Right, in both cases, there's a physical response, laughter. But in the case of a joke, what has to happen first before you have that physical response? You have to understand the punchline, right? Assuming it's a funny joke, right? Something has to happen in your mind. Something has to happen in your spirit. And if you understand the punchline, it produces the physical feeling. But if I, if, I, if I tickle my almost two-year-old daughter and she laughs, she's not lying there thinking, my father is tickling me, therefore I will laugh. Right? Nothing is happening in her spirit. She is, she is having an immediate, involuntary response to a stimulant. The, the, the physical feeling is, is the same. What you feel when you laugh when you get a joke is pretty much the same thing as when you're laughing because you've been tickled. But do you see how they're different? That This is a distinction that we need to recognize because, and this is what Edwards argued, okay, there's all this physical stuff going on. It may be because people are truly being moved in their spirits. They're coming under conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's affecting their bodies, and they're crying out. They're fainting. They're having these, these outward outbursts of, 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 of emotion. Or it could be that they're just kind of getting caught up in the moment and being artificially affected to have these, these sorts of, of effects. He says it could be either. We don't know. And therefore, what Edwards said is that these physical responses, they are signs of nothing. They're not signs that this is false, and they're not signs that this is true. They are signs of nothing. We can't denounce them because it might be that these people are, are, are truly being worked on by the Holy Spirit of God. But neither can we define what is happening during, you know, during this service based on the physical outbursts. In fact, Edwards and other, other pastors uh, uh, during this time that, 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 were, that were influenced by him and thought very similarly, when, when, so, when they're preaching and someone would, would call out, oh, you know, some, something out there in the, in the congregation, they wouldn't condemn it but they would remove the person right away and then go deal with them, you know, deal with their spiritual needs. Why? Because they didn't want the other people in the congregation to think, oh, I've got to do that too. They didn't condemn it because it might be that this person is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but let's take them aside to another room, let's talk to them, let's further explain the gospel, and let's see. But they, they, what Edwards refused was to define the physical experience by, or just define the revival by the physical experience. These, these, are, these are signs of nothing. Instead, 
Edwards argued, this is, he's got this lengthy discussion in the religious affections where he de- de- details signs of nothing, all this stuff. I mean, he says, higher intense feelings, sign of nothing. Physical manifestations, sign of nothing. It's not bad, it's not good, it's, it just is. Excessive excitement and talkativeness about the things of God, sign of nothing. It could be a result of spiritual uh, 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 conversion, or it could be a person just getting kind of caught up in the moment. Rather, he says, true religious affections are characterized by the lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus Christ. He has this long discussion in the religious affections where he looks at Jesus as the, as the, uh, as the perfect example. And he says, look at, look, at, look at the characteristics of Jesus. He is the example of true religious affections. And in fact, what he said is that really the only way to know whether or not the Holy Spirit of God has truly worked in someone's life, whether it be conversion or or spiritual growth and sanctification, the only way to really know is not in the moment. The only way to really know is by looking long-term at the growth of an individual. If a person has some sort of outburst, makes a profession of faith, great. But now let's, let's see what happens. Does, is this person faithful? Does this person continue in, in, in following after the things of the Lord? Does this person can, can continue to study the scriptures and grow in their knowledge and love for Christ? Well, if after a long time we can see that in a person's life, okay, that's, now that is evidence. The, the in-the-moment emotional outburst, no, Edward says, that's a sign of nothing. Now, this kind of distinction is really, really important when we talk about any sort of spiritual discussion, but in particular when we discuss worship and what happens in a, in a corporate worship service. As I talked about yesterday, I think this is clear, for instance, in John chapter 4, when Jesus said, worship in spirit and truth. Or in Hebrews chapter 12, when he says, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, rather you have come to the spiritual mountain, Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You've come to that mountain spiritually, but not yet physically. In other words, the core of true biblical spiritual worship is not in its essence physical, although we do physical stuff, We feel physical things, and those are not bad, but that's not the core and essence of the spiritual worship that we are engaged in. What is the core and essence of worship is believing the right things and nurturing hearts, chests, affections for the Lord that then influence the way that we live. And theologians after the New Testament emphasize this over and over again with with particular attention to music and worship. Christians believed that we need to, in the context of the church, in the context of corporate worship, teach and preach biblical doctrine, cultivate right beliefs in the minds of the people in our congregations, and cultivate true spiritual affections for the Lord, fruit of the Spirit, Colossians chapter 3, the, 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 the lists of the affections that we are to put on as believers. But we need to control 
keep under control the physical passions. And this is where music came into play. Pre-modern Christians, this is another category that's come under confusion, post-enlightenment. Pre-modern Christians who understood this distinction between the affections and the appetites also understood a distinction between two kinds of music. Music that could cultivate and nurture the spiritual affections on the one hand, or music that simply artificially stimulated the physical passions on the other hand. Early Christians in the first couple centuries of the church argued that the music used by the pagans in their worship ceremonies was specifically designed to work up the physical passions. We Christians, they argued, need to avoid using that kind of music that's just, that's just a stimulant that just works people up into a frenzy. And instead, we need to advocate toward, we need to advocate music that will patiently and carefully and modestly cultivate and nurture noble affection for God's truth. So let me give you some examples of this. For instance, Clement of Alexandria said, we must abominate extravagant music which enervates men's souls and leads to changefulness, now mournful, then licentious, then voluptuous, then frenzied, then frantic. That was very characteristic of the Greco-Roman entertainment music of the day. It was also very characteristic of the Greco-Roman pagan worship music of the day. It was frenzied. It worked people into, into, into sort of a euphoria. Clement here is saying we need to avoid that, that kind of music that just sort of whips us around into various kinds of passionate frenzy. And instead, we need to use, uh, he says, we need to employ hymns that have temperate harmonies. Music that encourages temperance, not frenzy. Likewise, later, Augustine insisted that while the affections are at the core of Christian religion, the passions must be controlled, and that music has a power in this. Thomas Aquinas, even later in the Middle Ages, again, again, all of this is before the, the age of reason. He made a distinction between the soul's affections and the body's passions. The reformers uh, said the same thing. Uh, Luther and Calvin, they considered worship to consist cent- centrally of pious affections, while on the other hand, leading to fleshly desires without controlling them will lead us into sin. And music plays a role in that. But this is a biblical emphasis. Why is it that today many, many Christians think if you are really a dedicated Christian, you're going to have no abandon. You're just going to let it, let all, you're going to be passionate for Christ. We even use that language. There's even a conference called the Passion Conference. Why, why is it that we think that? Where do we find that kind, of, that kind of description of Christian maturity in the New Testament? I would suggest that on, in, in contrast, th- this is what we find. I'm just going to riddle through some passages. Th- this is how the Bible describes Christian maturity. I, I don't find any language in the New Testament that describes Christian maturity as no abandon. Rather, Romans 12, 3, think with sober 
judgment. Galatians 5.23, a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 and 8, be sober. 1 Timothy 2, 9, women should be self-controlled. 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer is to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. 1 Timothy 3, 8, deacons must be dignified. 1 Timothy 3, 11, the wives of deacons must be dignified and sober-minded. 2 Timothy 1, 3, God gave us the spirit of self-control. 2 Timothy 3, 3, the last days will be characterized by lack of self-control. That's a negative thing. 2 Timothy 4, five, Paul commands Timothy to be sober-minded. Titus 1.8, an overseer should be self-controlled and disciplined. Titus 2, 2 through 6, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in behavior. Younger women and younger men are to be self-controlled. Titus 2.12, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but be self-controlled. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded and watchful because your adversary the devil prowls around. 2 Peter 1.6, add to your faith self-control and steadfastness over and over and over again through the New Testament. The testimony of New Testament authors is that Christian maturity will be marked by sobriety and self-control and respect and dignity, not, not let it all hang out abandoned. And this is, this is what Christians saw as the function of good music in the context of the church. Good music will help to perpetuate that kind of self-controlled affection for God and his truth rather than the kind of music that simply artificially worked up the physical passions. And various Christians use different terms to describe these things. Augustine and the reformers used the biblical terms spiritual and carnal. There's a kind of music that is spiritual, that cultivates the noble affections, and there's a kind of music that's carnal, that just works up the passions. Um, Others throughout the the, the history have used various terms. One that I like that's, I think, just picturesque is is some uh, uh, some philosophers through the ages have used metaphors of a Greek mythical gods to describe the distinction, and it's just it's just an interesting way to think about it. They use they use the distinction between what they call Dionysian music and Apollonian music. Again, these are just metaphors; these are just sort of illustrations that were used. But I think I think it captures the difference. Uh, both of these are, are mythical Greek gods. Apollo was the god of reason and logic, and he was considered to be the, the, god of, the god of music since Greeks thought good music to be expression of order and pattern. Whereas Dionysius was the god of wine and revelry. And so philosophers used those as metaphors to describe these two kinds of music. On the one hand is music that is reasoned, that is controlled, that is patterned, and therefore cultivates that in us. And on the other hand, there's music that's just, that's just lacks abandon and is just meant to be art, to be immediately gratifying and artificially stimulate the passions. And by the way, even even non-Christians prior to the Enlightenment talked this way. They understood this distinction. 
The reformers in particular emphasized this. Luther, Luther, in his production of church music and what he emphasized, he specifically argued for music that would calm the passions, particularly of the youth. He said, we need music that will calm the passions of the youth and wean them away from the carnal music that is just stirring them up. Right? These are the sort of distinctions that, that people made. I, I sometimes use the word modest and immodest. Some music is modest. It's controlled. It helps to carefully nurture the affections, while other music just sort of draws attention to itself. It makes us revel in our feelings rather than directing our feelings to, to someone else. Now, I, I don't personally think, if you want to use the word Dionysian or immodest or, you know, or, or, or artificially stimulating music. I don't think it's necessarily always evil. There might be a place for it. I just want to sit back and relax and just feel something. But when we're talking about worship, when we're talking about music that we are intending to use to nurture and cultivate our walk with the Lord, to nurture and cultivate spiritual affections for Christ, well then I think we need to listen to the, 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 the voices of those who have been saying this for centuries and centuries all the way back to the New Testament and be careful that there are many ways to artificially stimulate feelings that have nothing to do with truly cultivating our spirits, our affections for the Lord, entertainment, amusement, that, that's its function, just to artificially stimulate stuff. And again, I'm not going to say that's always necessarily wrong or evil. But when we're talking about the worship of a holy God, that's where we need to be more discerning. Now, we're, we're quickly running out of time, but I want to make a couple, couple comments of what, uh, of what Christians have done with this. Post-Great Awakening, Christians wrestled with what happened. Edwards is there saying, okay, neither of these responses is right. These physical outbursts, it's not proof that it's false, but neither is it, is, is it, is it proof that it's true. We cannot define the revival by the physical feelings, but neither can we condemn what's happening because of the physical expressiveness. And, he, and he, he wrote a lot about this to try to encourage people to, to reclaim and sustain this distinction between the affections and the appetites. The problem is that Edwards pretty much lost. Following Edwards, Christians began, rightly so, to want to see the same thing happen. I mean, it, it, it's understandable. Look at all these people that came to Christ. Our churches are filled with new believers. And then it starts to wane away, and fewer people are coming to Christ. And Christians begin to be disappointed. I want, we, we, we want to see revival again. That's a, that's a good desire. But unfortunately, because they bought into the idea that all of this physical stuff was essential to the revival, they began to try to find ways to recreate the physical stuff as a means to produce the revival. They got the cart before the horse. Edwards said the Holy Spirit of God worked in people's hearts, and in some cases, it produced some, some physical outbursts. 
But in the generations following Edwards, people reversed it and said, we need to create excitement that will then produce revival. And what did they use to do that? Well, they used many different techniques, many different measures to produce this. But one of the things they found to be really, really useful in this regard was the newly, the, the, the newly growing pop culture of the day. Look at all this music that has, that has as its design to make money. Right? It's supposed to just make people feel good so that they will buy music, so that they will, they will come listen to this music, or it's music designed to sell a product. It's immediately gratifying. It creates a lot of energy and excitement. Why, that's the perfect tool to create energy and excitement in our services so that we can, once again, see revival. And that's exactly what they did. In the 19th century, uh, uh, evangelical revivalists began to tell their musicians, look at what the advertisers are doing. Copy them when you write your music because those old hymns with their really thick theology and their temperate harmonies and modest melodies, which we're going to talk about in the next session a little bit, they don't create excitement anymore. People are used to them. In order to create excitement, we need, we need new things. We need to reject the tradition of the elders. And instead, we need new techniques, new music that will stir people up, that will create excitement. And if we can create excitement, then we can wake up the, the dormant moral powers within people and lead them to conversion and, and to, true, to true spirituality and worship. And I would suggest that began a trend that has just continued to this day. Some of the things that we're seeing in contemporary worship didn't start in the 60s, at least not the 1960s. It started in the 1860s. It started with this desire, this, this well-meaning desire to see revival, but to see it as something that we produce through the right use of means. And if we can just create excitement, then we'll see revival. The problem is they'd lost the distinction. They began to use music and other techniques that very quickly stirred up the passions, not recognizing what they were doing, not recognizing that they were encouraging and producing peoples whose God is their belly, rather than those who were truly worshiping the Lord and whose hearts were being patiently, modestly, sometimes slowly, because the cultivation of affection is, it doesn't happen overnight, but who were being cultivated to truly love the Lord with a deep affection for him. And, and that's, that's, I think, what we're facing today. We're, we're, we're facing, in, in, some, in some senses, an addiction to that. And it, it's, it's going to be hard to, it, it's hard to reverse because we've come to assume if, the, like we talked about the very first session, if the Holy Spirit is moving, there's going to be excitement, there's going to be energy, there's going to be passion, there's going to be abandon. But that's, that's a really new post-enlightenment way of thinking. And I think that we need to recover some of these distinctions, in particular these distinctions between uh, kinds of music.
All right, so we just have a couple uh, minutes here, 10 minutes or so uh, for some questions, and, uh, and then we'll take a break. Okay, so when there's this shift in the coming out of the second great awakening to using the music as a tool, who is behind that? Who is the, where does that come from in terms of the individuals who are, who are developing this new technique? So my, my students know that everything bad in the church today is Finney's fault. I mouthed it with you. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. Charles no, Grandison Finney. Right. Okay, mark that name down. He's, he develops the Walk the Aisle invitation, the altar call, 64 verses of Just As I Am. All of this goes back to Finney. Now, second question. He's asking me leading questions here. <laughs> I am. That's that's what a good good theologians are like lawyers, and a good lawyer always knows what the answer is going to be, right, Bob? So, would you? What would you compare? You know, modern music, the way it builds a, a an addiction. Yeah. How would you compare it? Would that be like crack or something? Well, it, I mean, really. So, so this. I mean, this. No, I'm. I'm totally serious. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it. It does. This is what the world does. It builds a habit, habitual dependence on this emotion right. as a steering tool. You know, we've all heard that wonderful phrase, "emotional revolt of the soul." That describes it. But this. I mean, this is the very nature of pop music, right? It was designed. To make money, and in order to make money, it's got to be immediate. And if it lasts, you know, the feelings created if they last and if they sustain, then people are not going to buy the new stuff. So it's specifically designed to be really quick and immediate, but to create a sort of addiction so that it doesn't last. And now I need, I need something a little more. I need something a little more. I need something a little more. That's what it's designed to do. And and the problem is, is, is it, it 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 doesn't sustain. The the uh, a true spiritual um, uh, spiritual life or spiritual affection. So so that's why it continue it, it continues right. It can, mm-hmm. it's 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 moved from the 1860s through the 1960s through various stages, and it keeps getting. There's always new. There's always different. There's always more exciting. Something that will that will work people up in a different way. Now let me make a, an important point here. If you hear this and you think, well, you guys are crazy. You're so addicted. Trust me. Trust me on this. I mean, I grew up, I was a child of the 60s and of the 70s and rock music and, you know, all of this stuff, just like many, many others. But I began to sense something. And I remember in high school hearing some people talk about, you know, there's some problems with rock music. And as a teenager, you're going, really? Really? But the bottom line is that all music reflects a worldview. Music isn't untouched by the corruption of sin. That's what we were talking about with aesthetics the other day. 
all music reflects a worldview. What worldview do these musical changes reflect? A theocentric biblical worldview or something else? That's the question you really have to answer. Okay, that's my two cents. Charlie, I I love this because I was teaching this stuff in the mid-80s. And I didn't have all the, as much knowledge and the tools on some of this, especially the music side that Scott has. And so from the moment I read him, I went, boy, he's, he's got it. He's got the, the academic education in the three disciplines that are necessary to talk intelligently about this. Now, I know some of you are great musicians. You love, you've got great skills in music in, the, in, the, in your lives. That does not mean... And I'm telling you, this takes humility to understand what I'm saying. That does not mean you can talk intelligently about music. It doesn't. Unless you know philosophy, theology, and musicology, it doesn't matter how well you play multiple instruments and how talented you are. The foundation is in theology, philosophy, and musicology. And most musicians don't have a clue about those things. And you've had discussions with well-trained musicians, and they just they, they just completely reject everything you said because they they don't understand that everything is undergirded by a worldview. This is so fundamental. Charlie. Uh, Scott, uh, you mentioned the Enlightenment. Um, after the Enlightenment kind of uh, emphasized reason, reason without revelation, autonomous reason, uh, there was a counter-reaction uh, in my studies in environmentalism. I see this in the late 18, mid-1800s and so on. There was a counter the so-called Romantic Movement and the uh, Walden Pond, and I'm supposed to feel nature. Uh, I often wonder if that Romantic counter-reaction to the Enlightenment was because the Enlightenment itself was trying so hard to have a rigid, rationalistic understanding that, again, sort of violated God's designs, and there's an overreaction the other way. And one of the corollaries of the Romantic movement, and uh, Rosaria Butterfield has commented on this, um, it destroyed the epistemology. Epistemology moved from a logical proof to how I feel. And it was Sigmund Freud who then took the Romantic movement and redefined the Christian soul completely to sexual orientation, which we're now reaping the results of. Uh, Have you seen the effect of that shift from the rigid rationalism, which wasn't necessarily Christian, it was uh, reason without revelation to now we have feelings without revelation. No authority. Right. Well, that's exactly right. I think the romantics had, in some senses, a, a right reaction against the pure rationalism of the Enlightenment. The problem is by that time, they had lost these sort of distinctions. They were thor- thoroughly secular and lost any biblical categories. So they rightly recognized there's more than just reason, but they didn't have the categories to give the right answer. So then it's just feelings. And then that puts Christians in this awkward position now too. Is it reason or is it feeling? Those are, those are wrong categories. Let's go back to the biblical categories and then we can talk. And the problem is you've got, you know, in, in, in Christian circles, you've got this debate going on, but we're using the secularist categories, so we're not getting anywhere. Where some people, there's no place for emotion in worship. And then the other side saying, 
Worship must be emotional. And I'm going, those are not the right categories to think in. We're, we're, we're talking past each other because we're not working in these pre-modern biblical categories at all. That's why I, talk, that's why I, I, I use that phrase, correcting categories. And it's why, you know, I mentioned this the very first day, Mu- music is just the symptom. You know, some people get upset when I speak at conferences and churches that I don't actually get to specifics of music. That's because that's like the last thing. If I were to get up here and just start talking about music, I don't have the categories to do that yet. There are so many theological and philosophical and cultural categories that we've got to get back into, into a biblical framework first and then... Okay, let's talk about music. And you know, at the end of the day, we might come to different conclusions on application of music, and that's that's fine. I'm not. My goal is. I tell my students all the time. My goal is not to get people to cross their eyes and dot their t's just like me. Although if they did, they would be right. But you know, um, no, I'm, I'm I'm serious about that. You know, when it comes to application, it's a lot. It's a not black and white. You know, let's have those conversations. But we can't even have those conversations until we correct these categories first, and that's. That's kind of the burden of what I'm trying to do. Scott, would it be safe to say then that, like David, we probably shouldn't be dancing in our underwear in the temple? Well, uh, with D- David's interesting. I mean, that was not a corporate worship Agreed. event, right? So is there a place for, for dancing in joy because of something sociopolitical? You know, the, the World War II ends. Can I dance because of that? Sure. Um, you know, is there a room for that? Yes, but you don't see that in the temple. Let me let me say something about this. When you he- re- hear or read about David dancing in the temple, think: what's the image in your mind? How many of you all saw um, what's his name in in King David in the film? Uh, can't think of the actor's name right now. Richard Gere. How many of you all saw that? If that kind of image can come into your head, if you think of 60s dancing or what passes for a lot of, quote, praise dancing today, your your mind is already front-loaded with certain images from the culture as to what David's dancing looked like. But there is a lot of dancing that is very orderly, very structured, very formal, it is not just some sort of subjective, free-flowing, whatever you want to do at that time kind of dancing. But that's what we postmodern subjectivists do with when we read that. We're reading a kind of dancing into that without stopping and asking the question, could this be some other kind of dancing? The kind of dancing that you saw in the Middle Ages, the kind of dances folk you dance. saw, folk dancing, the kind of dancing that came that was uh, pre-enlightenment, that this had form and structure and order, just like God's creation has form and structure and order. So think about that image that's in your mind when you read that. I was going to let you do that, Rick, because you're so good at it. I'd hate, I'd hate for you to take that image home with you. No, but it's a good point. I mean, there's, there's a difference between folk dance and the highly sexualized dance of our day on the one hand. So I think what, what David was doing, what, what Miriam did after they crossed the Red Sea, 
They absolutely danced, but it was a folk dance. It was men with men, women with women, and it was structured and ordered. It was a folk dance. But then number two, you never see that in, in the solemn assemblies of worship in the temple. That was, that was part of this, the, the socio, the, the, the social, cultural aspects of Israel. Now, for Israel, because they're a theocracy, the, it's, it's before the Lord. It's in celebration of what the Lord has done. But it's not, when, when it came to corporate worship and their solemn assemblies in the temple, those were set apart and, and very distinct. Uh, and and you, you, anytime there's, I think, maybe 11 uh, instances of dance in the Old Testament, and not one of them is is in is in temple worship, um, and I think that's that's an important element to to add to the discussion because it's a it's a legitimate question, but it's all you know it's interesting. We want to point to David in dancing, and it only happens once, and but we want to develop a whole doctrine out of it. Well, let's let's put it in the proper context. Great point. And one one, one more question. Who's got a question? Okay, over here, over here on the far side. On. Um Various occasions, I, I see videos of um, worship, so-called worship services. What I don't think of, but uh, where this got this this driving rock beat, working everybody up to a frenzy in the auditorium. But it's performance. These are unsingable songs, except if you made it up yourself. You know, I I listen to this. I see the what's going on there, and um. There's nothing, there's nothing behind it. There's no word of God behind it. It's all emotion. Well, so, and, and sometimes there actually are good lyrics. Mean, sometimes, sometimes there's no lyrics at all. Well, sometimes there's actually good lyrics. They'll take a the verse elements, or yeah. a line yeah. from an old hymn or from the Bible, and then there's all sorts of praise yeah. Jesus or stuff like so that. So this is actually the perfect question because my answer is going to be the next session. Okay. I'm actually going to, I'm going to, I'm going to address this very thing. I wondered session. if I was going to be anticipating yep. with this. Yep. Okay. So this is exactly what we're going to talk about after the break. Okay. Well, I'm going to let Jody ask the last question. Okay. Yes, Scott, John 424. Could you explain again what's meant by when we worship the father, we worship in spirit and in truth? So I take that, uh, perhaps a little, little differently than what, than what Alan's point, although I think we're, we're in general agreement. But I think in the context, the woman is asking about location, right? Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, this temple, that temple. And Jesus is emphasizing now with his coming, the true essence of worship is, is really rising to the surface because it's not that mountain or that mountain. It's spirit and truth. Spirit, pneuma, obviously, is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the human spirit? I take it as the human spirit. It is the response of our spirits, the response of our affections to truth about God. Uh, as the core and essence of what worship is, so that's that's how I take it, you know, in that in that particular context. Okay, let's take our break now. We'll come back in about 30, 25 minutes, and then we will um, we'll have our last afternoon session. We'll turn the live stream off, so turn your computers off, disconnect, and reboot, and we'll come back here about three fifteen.